First Peter 3, and we'll be starting at verse 13. Verse 13. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. And so he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago, when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you. Not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God. And all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for your word and ask that you would teach us this morning in a way that um, in our hearts that we will want Jesus to be set apart as our Lord, the Lord of our lives, our, our desires, our affections, our, our fears, everything about us, that we might represent him in this world uh, as he deserves. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in preaching this, this sermon this morning, it's, um, it's really weighed heavily on me because of the topic that I'm preaching about, uh, which is, as we go through this, the heart of this passage in the context of the whole book and scenario at the time is suffering and uh, how to represent Christ or live for Christ in the midst of that. And so um, as I prepared, I've done a lot of reading um, of the testimonies of others who have suffered who, and who are currently suffering for Christ. And I tell you, it makes me feel like a, a pygmy. <laughs> it, it makes me feel um, just like a beginner as I've read the testimonies, and I'm going to read some of those this morning, um, which I think are so helpful for us as we see brothers and sisters in Christ 
in other places in the world who are living today lives um, that are racked by suffering that we don't have a clue of, and yet, boy, they're a testimony, they're a, they're a light to us um, in light of whatever we might going, be going through in a far lesser way, but a way to look to them and, and see um, the hope they have in Christ. Um, so I'm going to start with a few illustrations just to give us a, kind of a context for what we're going to be talking about. Um, I've mentioned this magazine before. Uh, it's called Voice of the Martyrs. John Huss, this one goes way back. We're going to do one way back and then a couple in the current. John Huss was born in 1374. That's even before I was born. <laughs> to a humble family, he was ordained as a priest in 1401 and spent much of his career in Bohemia. He also preached in Prague, in the Czech Republic, which is now the Czech Republic, at Bethlehem Chapel, where 3,000 people packed to hear his sermons. Huss painstakingly copied John Wycliffe's books for his own use. John Wycliffe, if you're familiar with him, translated the Bible into the English language, the first one who translated the Bible into the English language. Like Wycliffe, Huss emphasized personal piety and purity of life. He stressed the authoritative role of the Bible in the church and cons constantly elevated the status of biblical preaching in the worship service. Well, as a result, he could only meet with troubles for such teachings, and in 1415, he was summoned to the Council of Constance to defend his teachings. But the council had already made up its mind about Huss, and he was arrested soon after he arrived and confined in a cell next to the sewer system. Physically wasted by long imprisonment, illness, and lack of sleep, Huss protested his innocence and refused to renounce his alleged errors unless he could be persuaded by Scripture. He boldly said, I would not for a chapel full of gold recede from the truth. After being formally condemned, he was handed over to the authorities to be burned at the stake on July 6, 1415. Arriving at the place of execution, he was asked if he would finally retract his views. And this was his reply. God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never thought nor preached except with the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. Today, I will gladly die. As the flames engulfed him, Huss began to sing in Latin a Christian chant, Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy upon me. Well, we're going to move from 1415 to 2008, just a couple of three years ago. In India, in the, the, the state in India called Orisha, it used to be called Orissa, um, 
In 2008, radical Hindus burned 4,104 homes of Christians, displaced 50,000 people, killed about 100. And the devastating attacks led dozens of um, widows. This is the testimony of one of those widows. She's 25 years old, about the age of many of you here this morning. Her name is Asmita and uh, Diggle. That's probably not how it's pronounced. She's now studying nursing at a college run by Christians. This is her testimony. She says, my children and I ran to the forest when they came, but my husband stayed. They burst into my house, poured gasoline on my mother-in-law and set the house ablaze. They dragged my husband out of the house to a spot near a river bridge. This is a little gruesome, but this is today, okay? This is, this is the world we live in today. This isn't 1415. And this is a sister in Christ. A Hindu boy told me later that they dug a shallow grave and asked for my husband to renounce Jesus. When he refused, they began breaking his fingers and then his arms and legs. Each time they asked him if he would renounce Christ. But he said, I will not forsake my Lord Jesus Christ. And they put a Bible on top of him and buried him alive. One more. This young man's name is Peter Paul. He lived in a slum area. This is also in India. He lived in a slum area that is home to many Muslims. And as a teacher, supports himself to do pastoral ministry. Well, he gave 20 New Testaments to 20 of his students. And the kids proudly took their new Testaments home, and then they took them to the, the school, the madrasa, the Muslim school that they went to. The leaders weren't happy. They got, gathered a mob of about 150 people from three different mosques and marched to Peter Paul's house. They caught him just as he was finishing his morning prayers. They dragged him outside, slapping and kicking him as they shouted that they wanted to kill him. His wife begged the mob to leave. He told his wife not to worry. He said, whatever is the Lord's will will happen in my life. I don't feel afraid. I know that God can redeem me from them. Well, some of the angry Muslims went inside Peter Paul's house and destroyed everything. The, then the mob dragged him to the school where he taught and called the media and the police. And when the police arrived, they arrested him instead of those who attacked him. And they charged him with disturbing communal harmony by giving Christian books to Muslim young people. Peter Paul thought about the Bible stories of Paul and Silas in jail and of the angel visiting Peter in prison. He began to pray, but his prayer wasn't for release. He prayed, whatever is your will, Lord, do it in my life. After getting permission to speak, he's in prison now, having been arrested for disturbing communal harmony. 
He shared his testimony and preached to the 70 other men in his cell. His sermon was about giving glory to God. Wherever we are, we should give glory to God, he said. When we are in the trials and temptations, when we are having all the good things also, all the time we should give glory unto God. And several prisoners moved by the message accepted Jesus. Persecution is not an accident, Peter Paul told us. It is the expectation. Those are uh, kind of sobering, aren't they? As we sit, I was trying to imagine what it would be like as I read some of these accounts to be sitting here, standing here this morning, wondering if in the middle of this time some policeman would be bursting into this, into our assembly time, or, or some radical, fanatical anti-Christians coming in to disturb, to attack, to destroy, to harm us. We don't, we don't have to worry about that at all, do we? And yet, brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, that's their daily occurrence. Are we ready for that? Are we ready for what it might mean um, or maybe what some of us are experienced to a, a much lesser degree um, at school. Maybe some of you anticipating going back to the school in the fall. If you were to live for Christ, the mocking, the rejection, or in the office place, in the workplace. Um, maybe for some of you it, it would be at home or among your friends? Are we prepared to boldly live for Christ in the midst of whatever might come our way? A rejection, opposition, threats, mocking? Just before we look into the Word, I have one more thing. And this is from Richard Warmbrand, and he wrote a little thing called Sufferology. You know, kind of like you have Christology means the sufferance. Study of Christ, ecclesiology means the study of the church, and so forth. He calls this sufferology. Richard Wormbrand himself spent 14 years in Romanian prisons for being a preacher of the gospel. And this is what he writes, and it kind of, kind of lays the importance of what we're looking at this morning. As you listen, he says, One of the darkest features of the Chinese church under communism has been the denunciation movement. When friends and members of the same family were turned against each other to betray and hate each other in, only, in order to save their own life. A quote-unquote Christian conference in 1951 attended by 152 Protestant leaders asked the death penalty for the Methodist bishop Chen and the evangelist Ku Jin and the Communist Party was more gracious than the brethren. They gave the bishop five years in prison. No one ever heard from Ku again. The Christian pastor Lu Chi Wei was attacked in a public meeting by his own daughter. I now accuse my daughter, my, my father, for the way in which he has blinded me, causing me to lose my standing with the people because of preaching the gospel to me. The father wept. 
She continued, do you think that your false tears are able to bribe my conscience? Good Christians, thousands of them, could be induced vehemently to denounce their beloved ones. Brother, son, editor of the Christian Farmer was subjected to such mental pressure that he committed suicide. Only a few resisted in the face of such suffering. You're not becoming a traitor and your resistance in times of intensive trial, and this is the point here, depends upon your earlier Christian life. Not, not what you're going through at the time of suffering, but before that. He says, when after the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the Lord appeared to Ananias and told him how to teach a new convert. And this is what the Lord told Ananias to tell Saul. Show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Every Christian church that does not teach its members the main religious science, sufferology, does not fulfill its duties. And this is how he finishes. He says, impose upon yourself mortification. And that's an old word that means self-denial. Learn to suffer and not to yield. The time may come when you will need this knowledge. And as we're here this morning, that might seem hard for us <laughs> to believe. Could it, ever, could it ever come? Will it ever come? But if it comes, even to a lesser degree, mocking, threatening, rejection, abandonment by individuals who used to think were your friends, how will you at that time, the question is, as we come to the text, live for Jesus, represent Jesus? As we come to 1 Peter 3, it's important that we remember that, that Peter's words aren't just idle words. They're not theory He's writing to these believers that he's writing to in the book of 1 Peter are living under Emperor Nero. And if you remember, Nero used such Christians as garden torches to light his garden parties. And it wouldn't be too many years after Peter wrote these words that Peter himself would be martyred by Nero crucified at his request upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified upright like his Savior, his Lord was. And so what does he have for us? Uh, to instruct us, to encourage us in the face of suffering. And if I were to put it simply, I'd say what he offers is, and it says it up there, is a different fear. A different fear. Um, I mean, the immediate emotion that all of us would face if somebody would burst in the back doors and start shouting at us would be fear. And what Peter is offering us is a different fear. When you look, it, fear is obviously. <laughs> It's a reality in all of our lives. In fact, most of our lives are dominated to a great degree by fear. <laughs> and we have all kinds of names for fear, don't we? Uh, agoraphobia. Uh, fear of the marketplace, meaning fear of being around people. 
um, fear of spiders, fear, fear of heights, fear of everything, but, but fear of suffering has got to be, you know, if the, the thought of pain, of deprivation, of torture, um, would overwhelm and, and dominate us if we were at that point. And this is where Peter begins. Look back with me at verse 13, if you would. In verses 13 to 17, he kind of introduces uh, this different fear. Notice he says, now who will want, verse 13, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? And, and you think the obvious, obvious answer would be, well, nobody, right? <laughs> I mean, who would want to harm somebody for doing good? And usually nobody, but the reality is often there are those who do. And, and Nero was one of them. And that's why he continues on in verse 14. He says, but even if you suffer for, what is, for doing what is right, literally it says you're blessed. Here it says God will reward you. Literally it's blessed. And, and, the, and the, probably the best translation for that is happy. <laughs> I mean, in the midst of suffering... For doing what is right, Peter says, we should be happy. Why? He says, so don't worry or be afraid of their threats. I mean, the first thing he says is, because there's no need to fear them who would try to intimidate or cause you to fear. Verse 15. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Literally it says, instead, set apart, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. In the face of suffering, in the face of unimaginable fear, the answer to fear isn't just no fear, but it's a, it's a different fear. It's, it's, it's not a fear of torture or pain, that would dominate us, or any of those other things that would dominate our emotions and our actions and everything about us, it, would, it, it controls us. But instead, Peter says, let Christ dominate you. The answer to things that would dominate your, your emotions and your actions that would, is to be dominated by a great, something greater. It's by, by Jesus. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Not just in your heads. And that, this is where I think it gets hard. <laughs> Set apart Christ as Lord. Let, let Christ be the one who dominates our affections, our desires, everything about us. Let Christ be Lord. And if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. And it's the same word is repeated again, and I, and I don't think it's the way it should be translated here. It says, literally, if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it with humility and, and it's the same word again, fear. I don't think it's talking about being respectful to the people you're talking about, but it's being dominated by the Lord Jesus Christ. So with humility emptied of ourselves and the things that would dominate us were dominated by Him. So no matter what we're going through, 
when anybody, it, it's like Peter Paul in the midst of prison, <laughs> boldly proclaiming Christ because he's where Christ wants him to be and as a result, lives are changed in that prison. Keep your conscience clear. And he kind of summarizes how he starts. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. So in verses 13 to 17, I want you to just simply see that the answer that Peter offers in the midst of suffering is don't fear because you're dominated by a greater fear. It's, the, it's, it's Christ that you're dominated by. So as we come to verses 18 to 22 then, he goes on and he, he tells us why we should be dominated by Christ. Okay, Because that, that would be the answer. Why, why Christ? How is being dominated by Christ going to help us in the midst of suffering. And this is the point as we come to these verses. I'm just going to read it for you. That I wrote, it says, what Christ experienced for us, physical suffering on the cross, what Christ experienced for us was in order that Christ might accomplish for us spiritual salvation and deliverance. The physical suffering he experienced for us was to accomplish for us a spiritual salvation and deliverance. Individuals who are truly free so that even when physically suffering, we are individuals being dominated by who Christ is are free. We're dominated by this information. I'm just going to read six things I get out of these verses, okay? On why being dominated by Christ should help us in the midst of suffering. The first one is, look at verse 18. It says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. As we were singing, um, singing the, the, the worship songs, one of them, and I, I was going to remember it at this point, um, it captured it beautifully. What I can't remember it. Um, anyway, number one, Jesus died for me. Sinless Jesus for sinful me. How does that impact you? Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? That's that truth. It's what C.T. Studd, you know, if Jesus is really God and really died on the cross, there's nothing too great that I wouldn't be willing to do for him. There's nothing that I wouldn't be willing to go through for him because my God died for me. Number one, Jesus died for me, the sinless Son of God, for me, a sinner. Number two, I'm forgiven once for all. That's what it says. 
Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He did it. It's done. It's taken care of. I'm free. You know, that's the beautiful thing about freedom that we forget is that being free is being free on the inside, isn't it? There are so many enslaved people in our world today. We, we walk by them. We live with them. We, we work with them. We go to school with them. People enslaved by bitterness and by anger and by addictions and by pain and by, by all kinds of things. Enslaved people, unhappy people, miserable people, road rage people. We're, we're surrounded by hurting, broken, enslaved people. And we who know Christ, we're free. We're forgiven once and for all. Finally, we're forgiven. There's therefore now no condemnation to those, to those who are in Christ. What can man do to me, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. If God is for me, what can any man do to me? But we forget that, don't we? When we focus on the suffering instead of focusing on the freedom and the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Number three, that is in all. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. Number three, this isn't all there is. I have an eternal home in heaven. And so suffering and death isn't the final chapter. It just opens up <laughs> the final chapter, which is eternity with my Savior and Lord in heaven. This isn't all there is. I have an eternal home in heaven. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. You know, one of the amazing things about Jesus, I think that we forget because is that Jesus didn't start physical, right? Eternal God, spirit God, became, was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago, became a human being. He didn't start a human being. Completely, eternally God became completely, eternally man. Don't, I'm not, I don't understand it. And why did he do that? So that he could die. That's why he did it. He did it for us because the wages of sin is death and so he became a human being so he could die in our place, on our behalf. So sinful people like us could be saved. Righteous for unrighteous so the unrighteous us could become righteous in right relationship with God. And so it says he physically died. He suffered physical death, but then he was raised to life in the spirit. He then, having become physical, having died a death that we couldn't die so that we could live, he lived again. He broke the power of death. He became alive so that we can live. And so the other thing, Jesus is alive. And we can live too. Because he lived, we can live. We identify with his death. We identify with his resurrection so that we can live. Suffering and death has nothing over us. 
because we serve a risen Savior. So it says he suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. And this is where the passage kind of gets a little, uh, we'll just say weird, okay? It gets a little hard. In fact, it was comforting to know as I was studying this passage that Martin Luther didn't try to understand it. He said he didn't know what it meant. You know what I mean? So who am I to try and think I could understand what it meant? But this is what I think it means. It says he, was, he suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. And then literally it says, in which he preached to the spirits who are now in prison, who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. And so we get this picture of Jesus, who physically died, but who was made alive in the spirit, it was in that spirit, as a spirit, that thousands of years before that, he preached through Noah to the people who were disobedient during that time era of the deliverance that was in the ark, and only eight people made it through the ark, Noah and his family. But it was through Noah, that Christ, the same deliverer that we have today, offered deliverance back then. It's the same. And that's the next point, is that Jesus is the same deliverer, yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same one that offered deliverance to the people at Noah's day, and he's the same one that offers deliverance today, because he alone is Savior, deliverer, and as you look back in the Old Testament, he's the servant of the Lord. He's the rock. He's the angel of the Lord. Every instance we see of deliverance throughout the whole Old Testament and New Testament, it's the same person. It's Jesus offering deliverance to us today. Whether we're in India going through horrible suffering or whether we're in Kitsap County, Washington, being made fun of by a friend or a co-worker or a family member who says, I don't want anything to do with you if you call yourself a Christian. Do you believe that kind of stupid, foolish stuff? He's the same deliverer yesterday, today, and forever. The one who delivered Noah, the one who delivers us. And that, and as it goes on, it says here, only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And then it says, and that water, meaning that water that destroyed those people in that flood is a picture of baptism. How is that? It's very symbolic. It's saying that in the same way that Noah and his family were brought through the flood by that ark, which was a picture of Christ delivering them. In the same way, baptism is a picture of how Christ, through his death and resurrection, delivers us, symbolically. He's the same deliverer. Baptism says, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body. It's not a physical deliverance, but it's a symbolic deliverance, baptism is, of what Christ has done. It's effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then last verse, verse 22, it says, Now Christ has gone to heaven. It kind of sums it all up. He's seated in the place of honor next to God, and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. And, and the last point that Peter gives 
these believers that he's writing to is that Jesus, he not only died for us, amazingly died for us, sinless for sinful people, once for all forgiving me, setting me free, providing me with an eternal home in heaven where I can live forever without fear of death or pain or sorrow or sickness. He's not only my deliverer, the same deliverer that's always been, but he's now King of kings and Lord of lords, and there's no authority that is greater than him. He is King of kings and he's Lord of lords, and every other authority, whether it's some big shot premier or king or president who thinks they have so much authority, they have no authority compared to our Lord Jesus Christ. And no demonic authority, no, no, no authority in the world. All authority is under his authority. And so whatever we're going through, that should give us the confidence that it's not outside of his control. And it's not outside of his knowledge and it's not outside of his wisdom. And like Peter Paul, God might amazingly and graciously use what he puts us through to bring about the deliverance of other people. Like Peter Paul in prison in India. So the question, just to conclude here, what should dominate our thinking in the face of suffering? I'm going to read one more illustration. And um, his name is Pastor Isaac, and he's in India also. And uh, I'm going to just give his testimony simply and then his own words, which capture 1 Peter 3 here really well. Pastor Isaac, he was in front of his congregation right now, like I am. He spotted the intruder right away. He was easy to spot because he had a red, it says tilaka, on his forehead, a streak of paint that identified him with the Hindu religion. Just as Isaac, Pastor Isaac began to serve communion to the church members, it says the stranger rushed forward from the back of the tent. He pushed past the worshipers. He knocked over those waiting for communion and he began shouting at Pastor Isaac, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? We don't want your kind around here. The angry man grabbed the communion plate and wine glass and he threw them to the ground. And then he reached behind him and he pulled out a weapon, a long knife. Pastor Isaac instinctively raised his arm, but the knife struck the side of his head. I had no time to react, Pastor Isaac said. I fell down and I tried to get up, but the man swung the machete again. Around me, the believers were stunned. They were shocked. They couldn't move. They couldn't believe this was happening. The man hit Pastor Isaac on the head twice before the members of the congregation chased him out of the tent. The pastor was taken to a nearby hospital and stitched up. He was brought to his hospital room and police entered his hospital room. At first, he thought they had come to tell him that they had arrested his attacker, and they did but they had some other shocking news for him. We have an arrest warrant for you, they said. 
The police requested that Pastor Isaac be discharged so they could arrest him. And he was thinking all along, well, why am I being arrested? Pastor, Isaac, Pastor Isaac's attacker had filed a complaint against him from jail. And the complaint was filed under Section 153-A of the Indian Penal Code, which makes it a crime to promote disharmony or feelings of enmity between people of different religions. Well, as Pastor Isaac was escorted through a large prison gate and down a corridor to cell number eight, he saw in cell number seven the man who had attacked him. Sitting serenely in his cell, being treated like a royal guest, a hero. He was allowed to roam freely around the prison grounds and they treated him with food and, and a good reception. Pastor Isaac thought about the man in the cell next door and decided to pray for him. And this is what I want you to get. At first, I was a little frightened to see him in the cell, Pastor Isaac said. But then I asked God to forgive him and the fear went away. I had no more fear because I knew God was with me. I thought about Malachi 4.2, the promise from God to be with those who fear his name, who revere him, the promise that God is constantly with me. If you are a firm believer of God, whatever the situation, whatever the bondage, whatever the difficulty, God will release you. Maybe not from that difficulty, but release you inside from the fear because of the greater fear. I knew there was deliverance for me in that jail cell. What about us? What is our fear? Is it a pain, of suffering, of rejection, of, of what people might do to us, of what people might say to us, what people might treat? Or because of who Jesus is to us, as we've learned just briefly in these verses, a greater fear, a greater something that dominates us and who he is and who we are in him, that we have no fear. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing what you've done for us. We who rebelled against you and sinned against you, how you sent us your own son, the sinless son of God, to die for us sinners so that we might be forgiven, we might be free, we might have an eternal home in heaven, we might be truly free individuals who can offer your freedom to others. No matter where we are, no matter what we're going through, no matter the circumstances, because we're free, because of Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.